Good morning. Y'all ready for this? Grab your Bible and go to Romans. Sorry, I'm a little particular. It's like got to be exactly the right height. There we go. I, I can think now. Romans. So what we were talking about today, we looked at your bulletin. We're going over the five solas. And so we're on the second one this morning, which is sola gratia, which in English is what? Grace alone. So salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, to the glory of God alone, according to the Scriptures alone. And so in the statement, usually Scripture alone is last, but every time we study it, we actually do that one first. So we studied Scripture alone last week. And so this is kind of rethink through why we're doing this, and it's Reformation Month for us. So October is Reformation Month at the Square. I always get really excited about Reformation Month. In fact, I used to say it was my second favorite month next to Christmas. I love Christmas. It has nothing to do with my birthday being the day before Christmas, but I love the Christmas season. Um, But now I think I'm growing to the point where I think I prefer this month, and it's not because my wife's birthday is in this month, even though it's a good plus. It's just I love Reformation Month because we get together every year and we start reading the Bible together, and you get a group of people together, and you up their content of the word. It's kind of like steroids or something. You, you inject that into the normal life rhythm, and it just amplifies everything. I love what the church feels like. I love the conversations I hear. I love getting the updates on my phone every time someone reports chapters. It's like, wow, this is great. People are studying the Bible, and that's what Reformation Month is about. So if we go study church history, you look at the Reformation, you can see a lot of awesome things. You can see a lot of crazy things. You can see a lot of weird things. We're not studying the Reformation because of the Reformation. We're studying the Reformation because of what happened with regard to the Scriptures. And so the Reformation picks up at a time in church history where a long stretch of time has passed without the Bible being translated into regular language. It's been Latin for almost a thousand years by the time the Reformation kicks off. And the chief takeaway from the Reformation is that the Bible was translated into the language of everyday people. Scholars started reading the Bible with a renewed vigor, vigor. Normal people who were literate started reading the Bible. Churches started preaching the Bible. And we emphasized sola scriptura last week. The idea that the scripture alone should be giving us the authority for what we believe, what we practice, instead of councils, instead of traditions. Not that those things don't have value and have a place. Logic, of course, has a place, but the authority comes from God's Word. And so if we look at the Reformation as a whole... People going back to Scripture, now you can trace different branches, Lutheranism, you can see the Counter-Reformation within Catholicism, you can see the Reformed Dutch tradition, you can see Presbyterianism, the Puritans develop, ultimately you get the Baptist, and then you get all kinds of things by the time you get to today. But what we can look at, if we go back and just look at the Reformation from a whole, is there's five basic truths that the church discovered, rediscovered is probably a better word, When they went back to the Scriptures, first that sola scriptura, but secondly, maybe the most important of them, after we get the source right, is this idea of grace alone. And So we're going to deal with grace this morning and think about how grace impacts everything about the Christian life, the Christian worldview. Our entire system is built around grace. If you remove grace from the equation, you have no Christianity. And so we're going to try to define that word and We'll start kind of broad, and we're going to narrow it in and get a little nerdy as we go along, and uh, I always get excited when we go nerdy, 
and I know some of you do as well, so I hope we'll just kind of bottle that excitement together and, uh, you know, put a Mentos in the Diet Coke and shake it up and let it blow up everywhere. Does that make sense? Good mental image? There we go. So let's get excited about grace. So I'm just going to quiz you. I have a feeling I know what the answer is going to be. If I asked for a definition of grace, what would you say? Unmerited favor. I knew that was what was going to come out. The definition is correct, but it's, it's small. It doesn't really cover everything we want to talk about, but at its very base level, that is what the word means. Of course, we can use words, even though it has a basic meaning, we can use a word a thousand different ways, and somehow that base, that root idea is present in the word. But a lot of times in Scripture, we're talking about a lot more than the root idea. We're talking about kind of the direction, what we're doing with that root idea of unmerited favor. Now, there's a sense in which everyone who's alive has experienced God's grace. Now, we recognize that well, that's maybe different than how we're going to be talking about grace today, but there is a common grace that's present everywhere. I mean, we gathered in a building this morning that finally does not let the rain through the ceiling. That's, that's great. We have air conditioning. That's great. We have medicine. That's great. We have a lot of good things in life. We have government. Now, sometimes we say that's not great, but guess it is. It is great compared to the alternative. There's a restraining of evil. There's a preserving of life. We see the same idea. Jesus speaking in the Sermon on the Mount says, God gives rain. Does he give it to the just or the unjust? He just gives rain. He gives rain whatever side of that you're on. Whether you're good or evil, God gives good gifts. We have lots of good things. The same wicked person as the righteous person can walk out over the Grand Canyon and say, wow can look up at the night sky and see the Milky Way and behold the glory of the Lord. The heavens declare the glory of the Lord. God has poured out His grace and a common sense to all people. We experience it in millions and millions of different ways. But this type of grace that we're talking about, this common grace, it's not saving grace. You can see the Milky Way all day long and it not save you. You can have air conditioning all day long and appreciate the grace of God in this common sense, but it not save you. Now, to show you this, I want you to see something that Paul does in Romans. We're going to jump to a lot of scriptures today, so get those fingers ready, get those pages turning. Romans chapter 1, we're going to pick up in verse 18 with the very, very bad news that says, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. So what thing is revealed from God? Wrath. All right, so it's not sola wrathia. I don't know what wrath is in Latin, so I made that up. I have no idea. I don't know Latin. I just know like the words related to the Reformation. So we're not talking about wrath today, but we have to start there. The wrath of God is Reveal. We've already said there's kind of a common grace, but there's also a lot of ways we see the wrath of God poured out on mankind. Now, he goes through and says the reason for this is we've denied God. We should clearly know him through what has been made. We should be able to see his eternal power, his divine nature, but instead we turn and we worship and serve the creature rather than the creator. And so look down at verse 24. What does God do in response to our rebellion against his goodness? This is the way he's pouring out his wrath. In this case, he pours out his wrath in a different case 
in the book of Revelation. But in Romans, we see, therefore God gave them up to the lust of their hearts to impurity. So one form of God's wrath being revealed is him letting you do what you want to do. Does that make sense? Like, okay, fine. Do it your way and enjoy the fruit that you have sown. It's not going to work out. Then skip down to verse 26. For this reason, God gave them up to their dishonorable passions. Do you see a pattern here? God's pouring out his wrath in this passive sort of way of here. Okay, fine. Respond to my goodness by doing all of the sin. Sure, go ahead. Do it some more. Verse 28, and since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind. Did you see this? It's over and over and over again. Just more, hey, do your thing. Have fun. But Romans, of course, is not written to emphasize the wrath that's poured out, though if we read the first seven chapters, you may remember when we studied this a few years ago. You know, it's a very depressing seven chapters because it's about wrath, it's about sin, it's about our unworthiness. But jump over now to chapter 3, verse 21. So at the beginning, for now the wrath of God is revealed, and that way he's given up things, given us up to things, given us up to sin. Now in chapter 3, verse 21, it says, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested. So we're comparing the wrath of God revealed now to the righteousness of God revealed. And this righteousness is being revealed apart from the law. Now, we could actually misinterpret this. Now, coming from a Protestant lens, you probably already read this first the right way, but you've already experienced a little reformation in terms of how you've heard this term righteousness used and preached. In the Old Testament, when the righteousness of God was revealed, that meant he had shown up in wrath. He had shown up to destroy evildoers. But the whole idea of Romans is we're wanting God to show up and not destroy us because of our sin. So he throws in that phrase. Now this righteousness is being revealed apart from the law, that the law and the prophets, they bear witness to it. Verse 22, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believed, for there is no distinction. And then you know this verse, right? For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a, probably my favorite word, propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. So now the righteousness of God, we might say the grace of God is now revealed in that these sinners, these ungodly, these unrighteous, have received a propitiation. So you see this parallel. Paul's, Paul's writing it this way on purpose. So at first, God's revealed his wrath by giving us up to sin. Now he's revealed his grace by giving up his son to sin. You see, it's, really it's the same attribute of God being revealed in both cases. It's just having a different effect on us. So in one sense, it's God destroying us, letting us destroy ourselves, and in the other sense, God is putting His Son on display to receive that very same wrath. The propitiation of God is that His wrath, His anger, His judgment against sin is poured out on Christ instead. And that is what we mean when we say the Bible gives us grace. That's special grace as opposed to common grace. 
everybody gets common grace, but not everybody gets special grace. Not everybody gets this special relationship with God. So God has given us this grace as a gift. That's our basic concept. Now with that in mind, let's turn over to Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 2. Now to deal with the question of how do we get that grace is the topic of next week. So today, the question we're answering with grace alone is why would God save you? Why you? You ever ask that question? Why, why would God save me? Well, the answer, and this is very important in your theology that you get this right, the answer is grace alone. Undeserved favor from God alone. So Ephesians 2, 1 through 3 gives, gives us more reason to remember why we're saved by grace. But let's start there anyway. You were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now working the sons of disobedience. So we followed the world, we followed Satan, among whom we all once lived in the passions of the flesh. Now we're following the desires of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath. Again, so this is really the same thing as seven chapters worth in Romans, just in a condensed form, like the rest of mankind. Verse 4, but God being rich in mercy. Now, mercy and grace are almost the same word. Now, if we're real technical, we would say mercy is not getting what you do deserve and grace is getting what you don't deserve. Now, that can be really confusing. Did everybody follow that? So mercy is not getting what you did deserve. Grace is getting what you didn't deserve. All right, so in other words, one word is neutral, one word is negative with a positive to meet it. So the idea of grace is you're getting something and you don't deserve it. The idea of mercy is you deserve something, but you're not getting that thing. Technically speaking, mercy is a type of grace because you're not getting is getting in a certain sense. You follow what I'm saying? So mercy is a type of grace. So now God being rich in this particular type of grace, that is mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us. So why does God show us grace? Because he loves us. And so far in this passage, what have you done? Sin. You've followed the world. You've followed Satan. You've done nothing but become a child of wrath. But God is still rich in mercy. He still loves you. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, just to make it clear, in case we missed it, verse 5, he made us alive together with Christ. And to summarize that, Paul throws in this parenthetical statement, by grace you have been saved. That's his summary statement for this whole setup in the paragraph. You're a sinner, you deserve wrath, but God's rich in mercy and he raised you up in Christ. Because by grace you have been saved. Now keep going. So far in this passage, you have done nothing but sin even at this point. Then in verse 6, he raises us up with Christ and seats us with Christ in the heavenly places so that in the coming ages, coming ages, what's that a reference to? It's the future, but specifically from a biblical lens, what do we usually call it instead of the coming ages? 
Resurrection, I'll take resurrection. Eternity, the final state, any of that lingo in the, in the end game. All right, there we go. So what are we going to do in the end game? So that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace. Now we have this tendency to think of heaven primarily through the lens of us doing the singing and God doing the listening, right? Just that idea of heaven's this perpetual, eternal worship service. But in this verse, who's making the presentation in verse 7? God is making the presentation, so what would we be? We're the audience. So we're the audience. God is making a presentation, and technically, he's revealing what specific thing about himself to us. The riches of his grace. So if you think you understand God's grace, false. You got to get to heaven, have a perfectly redeemed mind, and then God is going to spend eternity explaining this to you. You follow what I'm saying? So you won't fully understand grace on day one of heaven. God's going to reveal this progressively, time and time and time and time. Again, so when Scott started the service this morning, he referenced that, you know, that idea when we say hallelujah, or maybe in English we're more likely to say praise the Lord, which is the exact same statement. But you have that moment, maybe you say amen, or maybe, oh, wow, wow, you have this moment, maybe you're reading your Bible, and God speaks to you and just, I'm talking, hits you right in the heart, and you just, oh. Wow. Maybe it was in worship. You're having this time of worship. I remember one time I was singing. I was a teenager, and that song, I Can Only Imagine, had just come out, and we were singing that song, and everybody was praising the name of the Lord, and I just had this idea of one day heaven's going to be this place where we're all in one voice, united, speaking praise to the glory of God, and it sounded so amazing to see it, and I just couldn't even sing anymore. I was like, wow, praise the Lord, that kind of moment, or maybe it's during sermon, the word has jumped out to you, something pricked your heart and just gave you that moment of, wow, maybe you call that an epiphany, some sort of revelation has come to you, you've seen clearly with your spiritual eyes the glory of the Lord. Well, heaven is God making that demonstration every moment of every day, and you having an unceasing String of moments saying, wow, wow, praise the Lord, over and over and over and over again. But what particular thing about God is it being revealed that's making you say that? His grace, His grace being revealed over and over and over and over again. Now, what's so interesting about that is grace is one of those relative descriptors of God. When we talk about God being omnipotent, we could talk about God being omnipresent, omniscient, all-knowing. We could use these descriptions as like absolute attributes of God. Grace is a relative description. He's gracious in comparison to us. And so it is we in the position of redeemed for all of eternity. We will never reach this point in eternity where we'll forget that we are there by grace. Think about the picture of the lamb. What is the lamb in the book of Re Revelation? What is Jesus primarily portrayed as a lamb who had been? That's the picture. That's the Jesus we will see 
for all of eternity. It's never going to be about our merit. It's never going to be about our righteousness. It's never going to be about how good we were at anything. It's always going to be about how good he was, how amazing he was, how great his grace towards me was. And so still, so far in this passage in Ephesians, what have we done except sin and then receive grace from the Lord? There's there's no merit here. There's no good deed. There's no work. And just to make it clear, verse 8 says it as straightforward as possible. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. So did you conjure this up? No. Explicitly, this is not your doing. It is a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. No one, so at what point in your salvation do you get to boast about it? Never. Now think about that. That's the opposite of the Pharisee worldview, isn't it? We have this feeling we come to church, oh man, we're the good guys now. We're the righteous now. We're the ones worthy of praise now. That was a major transition of thought. We never reached that point. It is by grace we are saved from beginning to end. So let's fill out the first blank in your outline. So God's grace reminds us that we did not earn our salvation in any sense. So let's just kind of test that thought in our mind. So just just think in your mind, if if you had to stand before God right now, to use the the typical going to the pearly gates and Peter's asking you, why do you deserve? It's not like that, by the way, at all. That is not how that will happen. But since we all have this mental image anyway, let's just use it for our advantage. So you're standing before the pearly gates, and Peter says, why should I let you in? If you give any answer that doesn't contain the blood of Jesus Christ, it's the wrong answer. Well, I grew up in church. Well, I, well, I, well, well, I, maybe, well, I don't deserve to go in. But God in His grace has forgiven me of my sin. And I can boldly say by the blood of Christ, I'm coming in. And Peter's not in any better standing than you if he were even guarding the entrance. He's not, by the way. But even if it were that way, only by grace. Now, if you ever watch the news, here's another way she can, you can test yourself. You watch the, you ever get mad watching the news? I know you do. If you watch the news, I know you get mad. And if you're a happy person, I know you don't watch the news, right? So we watch the news, and when we see the news, it's not usually the evil things that happen. Like a, a mass shooting makes us sad, not necessarily angry. The things that usually make our blood boil when we watch the news is the other side, so whoever that is to you. So if you're a Republican, you see the Democrats this way. If you're a Democrat, you see the Republicans this way. If you're a Libertarian, you see them all this way. I mean, whatever you are, you're looking at the news, and when the other people do something really stupid, that makes you mad. You've been there? Any, I'll put my hand up, okay? Yeah, I do that. All, that's why I don't watch the news, guys. I just get mad at everybody. I watch the news, I'm like, you're an idiot. You're an idiot. I would never do something that Dumb, all right? And in that moment, when I say that, or I know you have, or you've at least, you've thought it, all right, when we do that, we're starting to categorically distinct, or distinguish ourselves in some more deserving group. Or we're smarter. 
We're more, we're the right, they're the wrong. And that's just one example. We do this in, in much more personal ways in our interaction with other people. We start to make ourselves the good guy in our story. Do you ever make yourself the good guy in your story? You, you do. You, you narrate your world. You provide a story for your world. You are the main character, and you're the good guy. Every time you make a mistake, it was circumstances. Every time your spouse or your husband makes a mistake, it's their character that's wrong. You know what I'm talking about? That, they, they wrong me because they're an evil person. I wronged them because I was in a bad mood. You have to give me some grace. Right? We, we start to make ourselves special. These are all examples of ways that we're really quitting to believe in grace and starting to believe in merit. What's our true standing before the Lord? I got nothing to bring to the table. No righteousness of my own, only the righteousness that comes from God. All right, but let's keep going. That's not where this passage ends, and it's not where the Bible ends when it's talking about grace. In fact, when the Bible uses the word grace, it's more often referring to what comes next. So let's read verse 10, Ephesians 2, verse 10. It says, for we are his workmanship. This is like the big summary statement. We went from sinners to now saved. That's God's doing. We are his project, his doing, his making, his creation, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So God prepared beforehand specific works for you to do. And why does he save you? To do those works. Now, do good works ever save you? No, not at all. But the good works you're called to do are part of the grace you have received. That's part of what's going on. God has saved us specifically to give us good works to do. Now that sounds an awful lot like we're just we're still doing good works. We're just we're just being careful about where we put it in the equation so that we're still getting the good works out of you. It's still kind of a works-based religion. We just say you're saved first and then we bring in the good works almost. There is a clear significant distinction between those two positions. And so I want to show you just this idea in scripture. It's all over the place in scripture. There's a few super clear spots where it's stated. I want you to go to 1 John. If you don't know where 1 John is, find the end of your Bible, Revelation, and just go backwards a few pages. You will find 1 John. I want to read chapter 4, verse 19. You need to let this verse sink in to your mind. 419. 1 John 4.19 says, We love because He first loved us. We love because He first loved us. So who loved first? God did. So why do you love? Because He loves. It's not this equal mutual love thing that happens where we each bring love to the table. God brought love to the table and that caused you to love. Does that make sense? God loves, that's why you love. So another good example of this, go to Luke, Luke chapter 41. This is that story where the lady barges in the house where Jesus was with the other guys, and the other guys are 
feeling a little self-righteous when she shows up there because she's kind of on the lower end of society, especially from a sin perspective. And these guys are the, the righteous elite. And Jesus welcomes this lady in anyway, and then they get mad at him. This is that story. And this is what happens. So Luke 7, picking up in verse 41. So Jesus, talking to the guy, says, let me give you a little story. Let me, let me illustrate what's happening. And so he gives this little mini parable in this larger narrative. This is Luke 7, 41. It says, a certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. That's a big difference, right? By a factor of what? 10? Yeah, by a factor of 10. And here's the question. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both of them. So one guy was forgiven 500 denarii, and the other person was forgiven 50 denarii. So here's Jesus' question. Now, which of them will love him more? So which of the two guys forgiven the debt loved the moneylender the most? Which one is it? the one forgiven the larger debt, which is exactly how Simon answers. Simon answered, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. So Jesus answers him and says, you have judged rightly. That is correct. All right, so what's happening in that story? Why does Jesus emphasize that somebody loves the moneylender more than the other guy? Is the, is the takeaway we're supposed to go around and say, all right, let's see who loves Jesus the most. Let's make a scale and see who's got the most Jesus love in them. Well, if we did make that scale, what would it be based on? How much sin you had. Now think about that. There's an assumption built into this entire process. To say you're the best Christian in the room, hypothetically, is to say you're the worst sinner in the room. They're the same statement. And I'm a really good Christian. Oh, man, I feel you. I'm bad too. That's what you're saying. Because our love for the Lord flows directly from our forgiveness. So, the greater your sin, the greater your love. And here's what happens in your spiritual journey. We have this notion that the more we get sanctified, the closer to God we become, the less sin we need forgiven. Now, the thing is, is when you got saved, you had no idea how terrible of a person you were. You had no clue. And the closer you get to Jesus, the more clearly you see Jesus, the more clearly you see yourself. And the more clearly you see yourself, do you think you're going to be more impressed? or less impressed, the closer you get to God, the more grace you realize you need. You never get to where you need less grace. So our forgiveness, our grace from God empowers our devotion to the Lord. That's your next point. God's grace empowers our devotion to the Lord. That's why it's very important that we habitually confess sin and receive forgiveness. That's why we should habitually take the Lord's Supper, that's why we should, should habitually confess sin to one another because the more we do this, the more we see our sin, the more we see our sin forgiven, the more we grow in our devotion to the Lord. So amazing grace is not just something that happens the day I get saved. 
Amazing Grace is the song I sing every day forward from that point. And guess what? When we get to heaven, when we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun. Oh, I lost the part. You know, yes, exactly. We've no less days to sing God's praise than when we first began. But sing what? The grace. We're praising the grace. So grace empowers our devotion to the Lord. All right, now, with all that in mind, let's go back now to Ephesians. So we already read 2.10. I want to jump over to chapter 3. So just probably the same page for you. Ephesians is a very short book. Ephesians chapter 3. And in the middle of Paul's longest run on sentence, in verse 4. Not verse 4. Where's it at? We'll start in verse 4 and find it. No, it's in verse 7. There we go. Paul says, of this, this is Ephesians 3, 7. Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace which was given to me by the working of His power, to me, though I'm the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. So how does Paul use the word grace in that context? It's synonymous with his calling. It's synonymous with his mission. God gave me a specific grace Not just grace to be saved and make it to heaven when I die, though that's absolutely part of it. But the grace specifically to do a specific work in the kingdom. Jump down to verse 10. He's doing all of this so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God may now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. God is unleashing His plan to glorify His name, and He gave Paul the specific grace to be part of that plan. But according to chapter 2, verse 10, where we're all the workmanship of God, how many of us are part of that plan? Every one of us who's been saved. This is the grace of God that you get to have a specific place in the kingdom. So our last blank, God's grace gives us a role in the kingdom of God. Now there's another way this word grace is used, and I do want to point it out. Flip over to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Paul's writing about spiritual gifts. I want you to see what is specifically stated in chapter 12, verse 4. Paul says, now there are a variety of gifts, but the same spirit, variety of service, but the same Lord, varieties of activities, but the same God who empowers them all in every one. To each is given. Now, back in verse 4, there are a variety of gifts. You actually know the Greek word there. You just didn't know you knew the Greek word, or maybe you do, but it's charismata. Have you heard that before? Charismatic, okay? English version, charismata. When you think of that, what do you usually think about? Well, depending on your background, you may think positive or negative things. It's a biblical word, though. Charismata is two words in the Greek smashed together, turned into one word. Charis, charis is grace, not a gift. It's a grace gift. So not only is the word grace used to define how you got saved, used to define your role in the kingdom, it's actually the formal term used to describe spiritual gifts. Your spiritual gift is God's grace 
to you, or Ephesians, or sorry, 1 Peter 4.10 says, let us serve one another with our gifts as they are measures of God's varied grace. So God's grace, specifically, consistently in the Bible, is the gift God has given you to use in the kingdom. So does God want you to use that gift in the kingdom? Now, do we ever not use our gifts because we don't feel qualified? We don't feel good enough. We don't feel worthy. Because that was the whole point. You weren't worthy of your gift. You will never be worthy of your gift. That's not how it works. You have been called by God's grace. It's not because you were special. It's not because you did something great. I love reading in the Torah. God's Moses is complaining to the people because as far as he's concerned, it's their fault that he's not going to get to go into the promised land. He's like, y'all made me sin against God. It's like, Moses, you know better. That's not quite how that works. But he's still upset about it, and he's complaining. And in one of those sermons, he's like, don't think God picked you because you were special. Don't think God picked you because you were smart, because you were strong, because you were mighty. You were this amazing nation. In fact, the opposite is true. God picked you because of how terrible you were, and then using you makes him look good. Does that make sense? This is the grace of God. And God used that people to bring about all these promises that culminate in Christ coming. This is God's way. So as we kind of bring this to a conclusion... How are we responding to God's grace? So many of you know the parable. It's the parable of the unforgiving servant in Matthew 18. I'll just give you the basic ideas. You've got the servant who's got a huge debt, kind of like the one Jesus told to, the, to Simon, the, the, the Pharisee. He says, but you got this guy who's got a huge debt, and this debt's un, unbelievable. It's, it's bigger than, is even realistic. So it's a hyper, hyperbole for sure. But he's got this insane amount of debt. And he begs and pleads, and the master forgives him the debt. And then the guy who's forgiven leaves, finds somebody who owes him like $20, which in comparison wouldn't even, I mean, you'd have to make sure you had a big enough you know, piece of paper to, to match up the difference between the number of digits and the amount owed. All right, it's not even a recognizable percentage of the total. And so he finds this guy who owes him $20 and starts to strangle him. Because you give me my money now. I won't. I'm going to throw you in prison. The guy begs and pleads. And actually in the parable, he uses the exact same words that the guy himself had used before the master. And he won't relent. Has the guy thrown into prison. Well, some friends who had also been forgiven heard this. They went back and reported it to the master. And the master finds that guy, unforgives him the debt, and throws him into the outer darkness. Which, that's a quick turn in the parable. One thing to go to prison, another thing to be thrown into hell. So the parable's pretty hyperbole. But what's the idea of the parable? Our response to grace is very telling. What is your response to grace? If you receive grace flippantly, like, oh, no big deal, whatever. God forgives me. I'm, I'll, I'll just go to heaven one day. I've got serious doubts about whether or not you have legitimately experienced the grace of of God. Let me give you three ways we squander God's grace. Three ways we do it. Number one is by not forgiving one another, which is what that parable is about. By not forgiving one another. Just someone in your life that you are horribly angry with and you cannot let it go. Well, that is the specific application of more than one parable of Jesus. By us receiving this grace of forgiveness, that should do a work in us 
that works out in forgiveness in every other direction. Don't squander God's grace by holding on to unforgiveness. Second, another way we squander God's grace is by not using our gifts to serve one another. God gave you that gift as a gracious work from his perspective, specifically to be used. And if you're not using that gift, you are squandering the grace that has been given to you. And third, by not giving from our resources to bless others. We read about this in 2 Corinthians, but there was that principle in chapter 9, as you have received grace from God, that should be the measure by which you give. So there's always this responsiveness to Christianity. Christianity is not about us coming together in a sense of duty and just doing the right thing for the right thing's sake. Christianity is about a God who, even though we did not deserve it, even though we could not earn it, sent his son to die in our place, to grant us not just grace and initial salvation, but grace for everyday grace, for life, grace, for purpose, grace, for an eternity that will magnify his glory as we respond in escalated praise exponentially for all of eternity. But in the beginning through to the end, it's a response. So let us respond this morning.